I think it's important to think about, you know, what is the currency of your institution and do they really value, you know, will they uh, exchange the same currency that you, uh, you value? Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast, hosted by myself, Dominic Pepper. In this podcast, we ask an expert clinician, teacher, or researcher to share their insights about career opportunities in the fields of critical care, pulmonary medicine, or sleep medicine. And for today, we go to Pittsburgh to speak with Dr. Burton Lee and discuss clinical education. Uh, before we get started, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. So um, I'm a pulmonary critical care physician, and uh, um, I'm a medical educator currently at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, I would say that my career focus has been in medical education um, and things that I've been passionate about. I've been in the areas of critical care medicine, especially mechanical ventilation. And I've also had an interest in uh, in scientific literacy and numeracy, uh, as well as global health. Um, great. Um, for those of you who don't know uh, Burton Lee, uh, he's received um, numerous awards for excellence in teaching. Um, and Burton, I'd like to ask you: Can you tell us your story about how you became a clinician educator? Uh, sure. Uh, I guess I could start with my time in medical school. Um, I was actually part of what was called back then a new pathway, and this is a new program at uh, Harvard Medical School. And it was not the first, but, but maybe one of the first schools to start using problem-based learning in the medical school curriculum. And and for those who who might not be familiar, it was basically, you know, there was only one lecture a day maybe, or maybe two lectures a day, and most of your day was kind of free for self-directed learning and reading. Um, and we didn't pay as much attention to the traditional things like anatomy and biochemistry uh, with the idea that, that we will learn things uh, as you go along. And uh, it sounded great, except uh, personally, I really didn't like it. And I, in fact, I was one of the people who were very uh, unhappy with that approach until probably about 10 years later, I think I began to see the wisdom, at least in parts of what they were trying to do, as I, uh, you know, as I began to teach others, I realized the value in this idea of, you know, of curiosity and self-directed learning, and then trying to figure out what is, you know, um, truth that is likely to be reproducible and sustainable over time versus some some spurious associations or or theories that don't really hold, you know, that don't really hold up over time. Um, so. Since that time, I think that's how I kind of got interested in things like evidence-based medicine and uh, and numeracy, um, as well as just just the whole idea of medical education as to you know what works, what doesn't work, how, how do people learn, and uh, and what work, what works for some people versus what works for other people. What what were the uh, challenges that you faced uh, with problem-based learning? Um, or what did you feel were your deficiencies in those 10 years before you uh, began to realize uh, it's important? Well, I, I mean, I think I think uh, people who've done it can probably relate to it. I think it's great in terms of uh, time and autonomy, and 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 also it's a wonderful thing not having to sit through class, 
you know, from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. every single day because uh, we we really only had like maybe one or two lectures a day, and then we had some small group discussions. But on a typical day, I think we had maybe half the day or more for you know for your own self reading. So it was wonderful. But I would say for a naive person, the frustrating thing part is you never know whether your learning is enough. You know, you you are never sure if you are reading the right material, and even if it is the right material, you know whether you are understanding it at the right level. So it had, you know, I think, both uh, positives and negatives. Um, but I think with time, I, you know, I think I, I began to realize that it really is true that most of what you might learn in first-year medical school in particular is not really that relevant for people down the road. You know, even as a, as a pulmonologist, uh, because I don't regularly see, for example, patients with lung cancer, I'm not sure that I can recall all the all the TNM stagings and so forth that I probably should know, but but because I don't practice it, I don't you know it's not at the tip of my tongue anymore, um, and so I think it even applies uh, even today for subspecialists. So ten years after you uh, used problem-based learning, you felt that uh, it's definitely the way forward. How did you carve out a career path um, as a clinician educator? Sure. Um, I mean, I think some observations may be first. Uh, one observation was when I was finishing up my residency and fellowship, I I naively thought that I have learned everything I need to learn, uh, in part because I felt like, you know, I worked hard and I trained at a reputable program, uh, so therefore I must be a competent pulmonary critical care doctor. But but when I finished, I think I, I realized, actually, there were many, many holes. And at first, I was kind of embarrassed by the holes, and I thought, well, you know, I, it must just be me, uh, until uh, I served uh, years later as a program director for pulmonary fellowship, and I began to think more about it. I realized, you know, um, this hole or, or these holes that I had is not just me, but it's, you know, it's virtually everybody, and even even people finishing from very reputable programs not all of us are mastering everything that we should master, um, you know, uh, during our training program and beyond. And so, uh, so that's that's sort of an issue that I've been grappling with over the years. And so, in some ways, you know, we we started playing with the whole idea of flipped classroom before it was even called that. Um, and you know, we started playing with simulations. But ultimately, I think the two principles that I've kind of have settled down to uh, one is what I call the uh, the multi-hit hypothesis. Uh, what, what I mean by that is for especially for difficult areas, you sort of need to approach and learn from multiple exposures. So, for example, uh, a lot of the things that I've taught um, successfully over the years have included, for example, some type of a of a reading or video that you would watch pre pre lecture or pre seminar. You know, followed by hopefully an interactive and engaging lecture or seminar, uh, and then some problem-solving exercises uh, and simulations and so forth. So I think I think this is not something you know new or unique, but I think a lot of people are doing this. But I but but I become certainly a big believer in a in a multi-hit hypothesis. And then the second thing is um, I, I I've come to appreciate this idea of of a complex concepts. So what I mean by complex concepts are, um, are, are there are some things in, let's say, in pulmonary medicine that you can just, you know, maybe read a chapter 
and pretty much get the gist of it. Uh, or you could listen to maybe a 30-minute lecture or read an article, and you know it's 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 not that complicated, and you understood it, and now you can start applying it. Uh, but of course, there are other things that, that at least for me and, and probably for others, is you know you read it and you kind of understand it, but you struggle, and then and then you have to read it again, and then maybe you have to read it a third time, and then you walk away thinking, okay, now I, I I read it, I understand it, and you feel good until you start applying it, and you realize, oh, actually I didn't really understand it, or I'm starting to make mistakes. So so these are complex concepts that really take just multiple exposures over time, not just one day, but but by many months uh, to really master, and so uh, so as a as a former program director, you know the areas that we've identified as being truly complex, uh, um, you know we made a list, but the ones that have sort of uh, have risen to the surface, uh, one is in the field of uh, mechanical ventilation, uh, the other is um, uh, um, cardiac ultrasound and echocardiography. Uh, third is uh, uh, radiology, especially high-resolution uh, chest CT scans, uh, and then in the idea of uh, scientific uh, literacy and numeracy. So those are areas where, in particular, we've tried to use uh, you know uh, these multi-hit uh, um, approaches uh, to tackle these complex concepts uh, with the goal of trying to develop true mastery, so that the fellows don't just finish because their three years is up in their fellowship, but they truly finish having, you know, reached reach a certain level of mastery. I want to come back to the, the question of numeracy, but before that, um, what strategies have you found as a clinician educator uh, work in ensuring that your learner is engaged and gains mastery uh, of their craft? Sure. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I think I think engagement is key, as I'm sure uh, uh, it's both intuitive and and empirically uh, appreciated. Um, so, so certainly, as often as possible, I personally have tried to use uh, um, small group discussions and audience response systems and problem solving exercises, simulations, all those things. And I think those are all great, and and I'm sure I'll, I will continue to use them. But but I would take it maybe one step kind of more general than that, and because I think the key for engagement is not so much that particular program or that particular style or approach. It's it's really whatever you can do to to engage the the audience. So for example, I've been in lectures where the lectures are so engaging, either because the topic is engaging or the style is engaging. Um, um, but either way, without any of those gimmicks like simulations or audience response, et cetera, a lecturer can be effective. Now, I mean, I think truthfully, lectures in general are less engaging than the other more more creative uh, methods, but it doesn't have to be uh, something gimmicky to make it engaging. Uh, and, and, and I think we all recognize even books can be very engaging. You know, we can... We can uh, tuck away somewhere and then read a good book and, and, and be totally engrossed in it. So, so, I, so I don't think it's necessarily wise to throw out all lectures or throw out all, um, all books or reading material or even to, you know, even to bar certain faculty from doing a traditional type of lecture. So I think it's one important point. And then on the flip side, I think, I think there are games that are boring. There are, there are videos that are boring. Uh, so again, you know, automatically these gimmicks don't necessarily make it engaging. So it's whatever you can do 
to truly engage the audience. So I think the key is really for the educator to get a sense of, you know, how engaged are they and 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 be willing and able to switch things up uh, if your audience is not engaged. Uh, and then and then I think equally importantly, if uh, if the audience is not comprehending, I think it's important for the educator to be fully aware as often as possible um, what's actually happening with the audience. Great. Um, since I've met you, you've always stressed the importance of numeracy, um, especially in medicine. Um, and, and maybe you could share to our audience why you think that every critical care and pulmonary physician uh, should have this uh, important skill. As a medical educator, you're trying to train people uh, in the field of pulmonary critical care medicine who will, uh, in theory, become experts in, in the field. So if you think of the word expert, I think the expectation that we all have, not only as educators, but also uh, from the larger society, that the experts that we train should be experts in all sense. So obviously, you are procedurally competent, you should be cognitively um, competent, but you are also intellectually able to absorb and adapt to new information. Um, And I think that is an assumption that and a goal that we all have, but how well that's occurring, I think, is what's being debated. So um, so there was a, a study uh, out of the state of Connecticut that took uh, internal medicine residents uh, from various programs uh, in the state, uh, um, and, and, and they found that internal medicine residents, for example, um, only 10% of them correctly understood the concept of Kaplan-Meier curves, and only about 12% understood uh, the concept of 95% confidence intervals. So, uh, so, so I often joke that 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 almost 95% of of uh, doctors don't understand uh, the 95% confidence interval. <laughs> so, um, so you could argue. I mean, how can you truly be an expert if you really don't understand what you're reading, especially in in the context of new information? So I, I often use this example, but but I ask people uh, in the audience, you know, uh, how many of you are illiterate? And of course, you know, everybody kind of laughs or 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 or, um, or looks at me funny because that's a ridiculous question, because there's no way that a doctor cannot read and write English because you wouldn't be in medical school or residency or fellowship. Um, but uh, but I think an equally important question to understand the scientific evidence is how many of us are are actually um, um, innumerate. That is, you're not able to really truly understand what you're reading in terms of the graphs and uh, and the statistics and the tables. And you know, as the study by Windisch uh, um, from the state of state of Connecticut shows, you know, actually the majority of us are actually not necessarily numerate. So so I you know it, it was an area along with mechanical ventilation and ultrasound and radiology. That 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 I and 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 others have felt for a long time that it is an area that we need to really try to figure out creative ways to educate our trainees because just kind of the natural path of a typical fellow I don't think it's actually occurring. Um, what advice would you give a a fellow or a faculty member who's considering a career as a clinician educator? What uh, traits should they have or uh, what what should they work on if if they're deciding to follow in your footsteps or uh, become an expert uh, an educator? 
Sure, that's a great question. I think um, I think the first thing is probably um, a young person on this track should really be honest about what you're really passionate about. And I say that because uh, in some circumstances, people say, I want to be a medical educator. And what that really means is, I don't want to be a researcher. So, you know, so like many fellowship programs uh, have a research requirement, or you're, you're expected or even required to go into a lab, let's say. Uh, and then there are some fellows who say, well, I don't want to do that, so I'll be a medical educator. So I, I'd be careful that it's not um, it's not um, um, uh, that kind of motivation because I think what you need to succeed and to really uh, make a career out of it is you need to be truly passionate about medical education. Um, and the second thing is I think you should consider the institution that you will want to join in the future uh, in terms of really knowing um, what the currency of that institution is. Uh, and what I mean by currency, of course, is in a traditional uh, academic program, uh, currency is NIH funding uh, or some other grant funding. Uh, and along with that would be, um, would be research and publications. Uh, for a medical educator, I think, uh, you know, it may coincide with those uh, in terms of currency, but it doesn't always uh, coincide. So if you go to an institution where they don't value what you are, uh, you know, you know what you value, uh, then you're probably not going to be very happy there, and, and you're probably not going to be very successful. So I think it's important to think about, you know, what is the currency of your institution, and do they really value? You know, will they uh, exchange the same currency that you uh, you value? Um, one one other thing that, that I think is really important is um, I think people often underestimate the amount of time it takes to be a medical educator. Uh, sometimes people assume that medical education is something that you can just do like on the side. Essentially, you are a full-time clinician, and because you like to teach, you add on this and you add on that. And of course, you know, that works well for isolated, you know, lectures or even, even you know, even a course once in a while. But I think that becomes unrealistic and unsustainable um, over time. So, um, so I think I think to you know to make a good product, you really need time, and then to do it well, you need to insert creativity. So, um, so I think you really need to have a situation where you have as much protected time as possible. Otherwise, it I think becomes uh, difficult to sustain uh, over the years. And then finally, I think you know, uh, especially in an academic setting, I think uh, uh, being a medical educator is certainly a less uh, traveled road, so you may have a hard time sort of navigating all these things, uh, uh, you, know, you know, if you want to be a young medical educator. So, so my encouragement is to not only find an institution that values what you have to offer, first of all, but beyond that, I think it's important to find a good mentor who is, you know, hopefully five to 15 years, years ahead of you, uh, you know, who can you know, who can basically um, uh, walk alongside of you, but also to be able to find uh, colleagues who have similar interests, especially colleagues that could be synergistic uh, in in the medical education endeavor so that, you know, so that one plus one becomes four and you can really help each other. And, and I think without that synergy and colleagues and a supportive uh, mentor, 
again, I think it becomes very challenging for you to succeed. That was awesome. <laughs> it was nice speaking to you, Burton. I really appreciated uh, your, your comments, especially the point about the, the making sure that you use the right currency. Um, I haven't heard that before, but it makes perfect sense. You're very welcome, yeah. A big thank you to Dr. Burton Lee for joining me. And thank you to all of you for listening to the Breathe Easy podcast. I'm Dominic Pepper for the American Thoracic Society.